you know where I'm going to take you right off the bat. I want us to go to the little acronym there at the front because I want us to really get in our heads this, this simple way to remember the book of Romans. Tonight, we're in what is called, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let me just start with the acronym. We know that chapter 1, 1 through 17 is about the what? The cross. And then the zero or the O of Romans is, what is it called? The ditch. So you got the cross and you got the ditch. Now that's chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, the ditch. The ditch is uh, Paul making the case so that we cannot refute it, that everybody is a sinner, now, we don't like hearing that in our day, but that's the truth. Have an amen? I mean, is it really a news flash looking at our culture right now that everybody is a sinner? Yeah. So he's, he's building the case through chapter 3, verse 20, so that none of us can escape the fact that something's got to be done about the sin in my life. Now, we come to the M, and that's the road. And that's chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5. And that is where God presents us as righteous before God. The whole theme in the road is that we are saved by grace through what? Through faith. We're saved by faith, not by works. That is the, that is the drumbeat of the book of Romans, at least uh, through chapter 5. Now in the A in Romans, we come to the plan. That's chapters 6 through 8. That's the plan. The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives, and that's where we are tonight. We're going to be on chapter 8. He, call, he shows us how to live a righteous life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the end, and that's 9 through 11. Now my personal devotionals, uh, it just so happens. Uh, you know, I, I do a through the Bible in a year, every year. And I have a little through the Bible in a year Bible. So whatever the date is, I go there and I read Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs every time. It just so happens I'm in Romans 11 this morning, all right? Romans 11 and 9 through 11 is red meat, T-bone steak, deep, profound theology. And we're going to be digging into the meat of the word when we start next week. Well, not next week, week after, because it's going to take us two weeks to do Romans chapter 8. I can't. I can't do Romans 8 in one week and do it justice. So then the S is the kingdom, 12 through 16. And uh, God's name is glorified by his people living out righteous lives. Paul gets very practical. Uh, He said, I've given you all this theology. Now let me tell you how to live it out. And I love uh, that about uh, Paul's epistles. Now let's go to chapter 8. All right? Uh, we don't have this in page numbers. Next time I'm going to do page numbers, it, it would help because uh, I can't tell you what page to turn to. But just go to part 8A. Take a walk down the Roman road, part 8A, where you see no condemnation. All right? There's no condemnation. Now, last time in chapter 7, we saw that the law, and that's Moses' commandments, all right? Moses' commandments had the effect of exposing the exceeding sinfulness of man. The law wasn't given so that we could obey it. The law was primarily given so we we could realize we can't obey it and we need another way to God because we will never achieve God's righteous requirements on our own. We'll never, ever, ever do it. All right? So when when Moses brought the law down from the, the mountain, 
Uh, at first, the people thought, great, cool. Now we've got the commandments. Now we know how to live. But before long, they realized we know how to, but we don't know how to do it. We know what will please God, but we don't know how to make that happen in our own strength because we fall short every time. Now, the law ended up serving as our schoolmaster to lead us to God's grace found in Jesus Christ. How many of you are thankful for amazing grace? How sweet the sound. Amen. Now, chapter seven closed out with Paul crying out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death? What was he talking about? The endless battle between the law of sin in his members or in his body and the law of God, which he genuinely wanted to follow, but couldn't. Now, if Paul had ended Romans with chapter 7 and we didn't have the next nine chapters, uh, it would be a very, very depressing, depressing letter. Because, yeah, I'm a sinner, and yeah, God gave the law, and wow, I can't live it out. And then if it had ended right there, we would have all been saying, oh, wretched man that I am, oh, wretched person that I am, what am I going to do? Who, who's going to help me? Because I can't live this out on my own. And we would have, we would have ended Romans with despair. But chapter 7 is a setup for chapter 8. Amen? So chapter 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I don't know if I would say that. I would say it's certainly one of the greatest chapters. Maybe it is the greatest chapter in the Bible. It is certainly the summit of the book of Romans. It's the top peak which the first chapters have climbed and from which the rest of the book flows. So chapter one through seven lead to chapter eight. There's the mountaintop. After chapter eight, the rest of the book flows out of chapter eight, out of the truth of chapter eight. So if we hear anything in the book of Romans, we need to hear chapter eight because chapter eight is gonna tell us how we live in victory over the flesh, over the world and over the devil. How do we do it? All right. Now, um, chapter eight begins with two beautiful words. Let's say them together. No condemnation. Let's try it again. No condemnation. And it ends with no separation. Begins with no condemnation, ends with no separation. Therefore, says verse one, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you realize that's true? Because in chapter 7, he's feeling nothing but condemned. But here comes chapter 8. Chapter 8 says, but guess what? Because of what Jesus did for us, there's no condemnation. I'm not under condemnation. I'm not under guilt. I'm not under blame. I'm not under the threat of judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation. And the chapter ends, no separation. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are aware, everybody, in Christ Jesus. Now, the key words here are some of Paul's very favorites, in Christ Jesus. He uses in Christ Jesus all over the place in his writings. All right, in Christ Jesus. It occurs in all of his epistles and points to a new sphere into which the believer has been placed at the very moment they were saved. What happened when you were saved? You were immediately placed in Christ. And when you were placed in Christ, 
you were immediately delivered from condemnation. All right? Now, <clears throat> the concept of being in Christ is not an easy one without a picture, an illustration, something. So let's, let's get one. Let's, let's grab it out of the Bible. Let's think for a moment about Noah and the ark. When the ark was finished, a perfect and singular way of escape was available to everybody that took it. Now I want all of you to remember, what did Jesus say about the last days? He said, as it was in the days of who? Noah. So will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What did Jesus mean? Well, think of the parallels between Noah and the ark and us and Jesus. Because Jesus is called the ark of the New Testament. He's the ark of the covenant, the new covenant. What, what are we told Noah did for 120 years? He built the ark. Well, but that's one thing. But that's not the only thing. He did two things. He built the ark and he preached. Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. Peter, or, uh, Noah preached repentance to his generation for 120 years. And he didn't have one convert. That depresses me. I mean, I'll tell you, as a preacher, that depresses me. What, not one convert. I don't know if I could keep going for 120 years if I was having no harvest whatsoever. Think of all the invitations, nobody comes. What if I was up here for 30 years giving invitations and nobody came? Even some of you would come up to me and say, Pastor Jeff, hang it up. <laughs> right? But for 120 years, there wasn't one convert. Not one but he was a preacher of righteousness. He kept preaching, repent. And, and if you're repenting, if you want to repent and get right, get into the ark. The ark is the only way out. I'm building an ark. When the ark is done, you're gonna have to get in that ark. And if you don't get into that ark, you are gonna perish in a great flood that is coming. And he preached this. And not one person, not one, got into the ark except him, Mrs. Noah, his three sons, and their wives. And that was it. No one else got in. Eight people. Eight people got into that ark. And the Bible says, God shut the door. And it began to rain. But here's the parallels. There was only one way out, the ark. In our day, there's only one way out, the ark of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. The day is going to come when God is going to shut the door. And when God shuts the door, it's going to be eternally too late. He shut the door on Noah's ark. And once he shut that door, you could not get in. It was over with. Certain judgment was coming in Noah's day and certain judgment is coming in our day. The parallels are amazing. The invitation during those days went out from God. Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation, he said to Noah. Now we know that this invitation had been extended to all the people of Noah's day because Peter informs us that Noah had been a preacher of righteousness the entire time he was building the ark. Look what Peter tells us, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and he did not, but he sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, and that's where there are many fallen angels right now, they're in a dungeon. God has put them in a spiritual dungeon awaiting the great white throne judgment. So when angels fell, God didn't say, well, you're an angel, so I'm not judging you. No, he judged angels, and that's Peter's point. If he did not spare the ancient world, Noah's world, 
when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. But he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, his family. The Bible reveals the ark was pitched within and without with pitch. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew word for pitch, kofer, kofer, is the identical word used elsewhere for atonement. It's defined as a redemptive price, ransom, or satisfaction. Wow, powerful. So even the pitch that he made the ark with in the Hebrew language, it meant redemption. It meant atonement. It meant satisfaction, meaning God was satisfied with his judgment and his, his salvation of anybody that repented. Here's the picture. Between the saved within the ark and the waters of judgment without were the wood and pitch. Once Noah and his family were safely in the ark, we read that the Lord shut him in. Chapter 7, verse 16. Now, this portrays everybody complete security, does it not? God did not say to Noah, now Noah, I want you to take eight long spikes, one for each member of the family and yourself, and drive them into the side of the ark so that when the floodwaters rise, you and your family can hang on for dear life. So Noah, Mrs. Noah, and the three sons and their wives are all hanging by a spike, spike or driven into the side of the ark. Is that what God did? No, that's not what God did. All right. As long as you hang on, Noah, you're saved. But if you let go, sorry, Charlie, you're lost. Can't help you there. Is that the way God did it? Was their salvation that uncertain is the point? No. God shut him in. And what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is exactly what it means for us to be in Christ. In him, we have been placed in a sphere where his wrath can never reach us and we are secure. Watch this. There they are in the ark with all the animals. And the ark is floating way, way, way above ground in very deep water. Everything out there is covered up. As far as your eye can see, it's a sea. And yet the water of judgment didn't touch them. It was beneath them. It was around them. But it didn't touch them because they were safe in the ark. What's the picture? So are we safe in Jesus Christ. Amen? We are safe in Jesus Christ. So there is therefore now no more condemnation for sin. The, the, the waters of God's judgment cannot get to us because we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed. And God is satisfied with the blood of the Lamb that's over our life. Can we thank Jesus for that tonight? Amen. Amen. And there need be no more control by sin. Now, let's watch where Paul takes us in the first half of Romans 8. He says, you're free of condemnation, but let's go further. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, follow me. What does that mean? What does it mean I'm free from the law of sin and death? Well, notice he's mentioning two laws. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. So these are laws. Now, give you another picture. Picture a coin falling into the ground under the power of the law of gravity because gravity is a law, all right? 
and law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life are laws, every bit as much laws as the law of gravity. So imagine I drop a coin right now and it begins falling to the ground under the law of gravity. Left to itself, will it fall? Yes, it will fall. It's powerless of itself to stop the downward pull to the earth. You and I were powerless to defeat sin ourselves because the law of sin and death was dragging us down. All right? But now imagine before it strikes the ground, I reach out my arm and I grab it before it slams into the ground. And I hold the coin tightly in my hand and I lift it higher and higher and higher in defiance of the law of gravity. The law of the spirit of life in that person's, in my arm, overcomes the law of gravity. Here's what he's telling us. We were all falling to the ground. We would have all been judged by God. We would have all suffered eternal damnation. We would have all gone to hell. How many of you know that's true? We were falling. But then we heard John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we placed our faith in Christ. And when we did, another law kicked in. And the law of the spirit of life, God's Holy Ghost, grace, grabbed us as we were falling and picked us up and defied the law of sin and death because the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ is stronger than the law of sin and death. Are you with me? And so every one of us that were falling to the ground and we would have ended up eternally lost, now we're in the, the, the nail-scarred hands of the Savior and he, we are defying the law of sin and death and we always will because it can't pull us down anymore because we're not under condemnation. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Holy Ghost is living inside of us and we are in God's hand and he is picking us. He is carrying us upward whereas sin was carrying us downward. We are in his hand and only by his hand will we ever defy the law of sin and death. Oh man, that is good stuff. If you can just walk out of here tonight getting a hold of that, how am, I, how am I defeating the flesh? How am I defeating the world? How am I pleasing God in, in my walk with him? Because a hand grabbed me when I was falling, the hand of the Savior, and wrapped his hand around me and hoisted me up and picked me up. And one day there's gonna be a trumpet sound and then we're going all the way up. But until we go all the way up, we're no longer under the law of sin and death. We're under the law of the spirit of life. Do you get it? Do you get it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. How have I already come? Through many dangers, toils, and snares. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace that holds me up will lead me home. This is what you call theology. This is the kind of stuff we need to understand. If the church understood this, there'd be a lot less defeat and a whole lot more victory. If we really understood this, because once you're saved, you're saved. You're in the ark. The door has been shut. 
you're good to go. You're not waiting for the undertaker, you're waiting for the upper taker. Amen? And you're good to go. And you're going to go up. But in the meantime, you're being held by the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. Now, doesn't mean that gravity ceased to operate if that coin doesn't hit the ground, but it does mean that a higher law came into play. We sin by nature because we are victims of the fall. It's in the nature of all people to sin. But in Jesus Christ, a higher law operates. Do you get it, folks? The law, say it with me, the law of the spirit of life. And this law sets us free from the lesser law of sin and death. So I don't have to obey sin anymore. I don't have to obey the devil anymore. I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm not hanging on the outside of the ark by a stake driven into it. I'm in it and the door has been shut. I'm safe. Look what it says in verses three and four. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to what everybody? The spirit. All right. The law was good, but it was weak. Not the law itself, but the law couldn't be fulfilled because it was weak through our flesh. We couldn't fulfill it. So God sent his own son who lived a perfect life and he condemned sin in the flesh and his perfect walk was imputed to you and me and therefore now there's no more condemnation. Jesus never one time, I want you to think about this, he never once yielded to a sinful thought, spoke a wrong word or committed an improper act. Don't you know his brothers and sisters had a real struggle with him? Now I say his half brothers and sisters because the rest of them were by Joseph and Mary, but Jesus' daddy was God, okay? But, but don't you know that some of them said, Mom, how come Jesus never gets spanked? Because he doesn't ever do anything wrong. <laughs> he doesn't ever do anything wrong. Well, that's not fair. I'm, I, you spank me all the time. Well, you do things wrong all the time and not him. Because we've got to get this in our head. He lived a perfect, sinless life. There was not one thing the devil could point to about Jesus Christ and say to God, he sinned. That's why at the end, Jesus said, when they were coming to get him and arrest him and crucify him, he said, the prince of this world is coming, but he's got nothing in me. No one else could ever say that, but Jesus could. He's got nothing in me. What do you mean? I've never done anything. I've never thought anything, spoken anything, acted anything out, or had any kind of an attitude that was sinful. Wow. Wow. And aren't you glad God imputed that kind of walk to you? All right? Through the miracle of Christ indwelling in the believer... The life that Jesus lived can now be reproduced in us by his spirit. It's not reproduced by us, but in us 
if we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit controlling the believer. I've been preaching on this on Sundays, some, or actually quite a bit, uh, in my Abide series, because we've got to get this. Church, we have got to get these things. We've got to get them. If, if we just understand what's in Romans 8, it's so change your life. Watch this. When we look at chapter 7, we see that it's dominated by the words, I, me, and my. Paul says, I'm struggling. I'm a mess up. It's me that is the problem. My flesh is always getting me in trouble and carrying me down. I'm the coin that's always falling and uh, towards the ground. Me, my, I. It's very uh, uh, self-obsessed, chapter 7. But not chapter 8. Chapter 8 is dominated by the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned 19 times. The new Lord, guide, and ruler in the believer's life is the Holy Spirit of God, not the flesh. Before we were saved, we did what the flesh wanted us to do. But now that we're saved, we do what the Spirit wants us to do. So first, what does the Spirit want to do? Well, he wants to control our minds first. He wants to be in control of what we think about. Look what he says, verse five to seven. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their what, everybody say it, minds set on what? That nature desires. What nature? The sinful nature. So if you're living according to the flesh or the sinful nature, you're gonna be thinking about fleshly things all the time. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. If all you're ever thinking about is fleshly things, you're never in the word, never in prayer, um, never thinking about the promises, not walking in the spirit, then the fate is you wilt on the inside and you die. You're not abiding in the vine. If you have your mind set on what the flesh desires. But he says, if you have your mind set and controlled by the spirit of God, then your mind is going to be thinking about spiritual things. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So notice, there's a key here. The phrase, have their minds set, simply refers to what you choose to think about, to set your thoughts on. It's a choice, all right? We can either set our minds on the things of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus, the Word of God, the things of God, or we can choose to think about those things that pertain to the flesh. Lustful thoughts, greedy, covetous, grudges, bitterness, gossip, slander, you name it. All the works of the flesh that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. So here's what we've got to ask ourselves every day. How can I get my mind on the things of the spirit and get them off the flesh? I'm going to tell you how. It's what I do every day. You get up in the morning and you get into the word of God right off the bat. Please hear me, church. You got to get into the word of God right off the bat. Now, there's times I, I, every once in a blue moon, something will happen. And uh, Recently, I had to rush my dog off to the vet because there was a problem and I had to go to the vet and I wasn't able to get with God, but you know what I felt like all day long? Like I was playing catch up. Like I was playing catch up because I didn't get with him first. So see, when you get with him first, 
then it's like you're setting your mind, the setting, you're setting the direction your mind is going to go for the rest of the day. And it needs to go on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Don't get up and watch Good Morning America. Don't get up with Good Morning America. Good Morning America has nothing for you. Neither does the Today Show. None of those things do. Don't get up and turn on the TV. Get up and find a place and open up your Bible and read it. Now, there's lots of ways you can do it. You can do it online. Lord, if anybody has no excuse for not getting in the Word of God, it's Americans. We can go online. We can have our own Bible. There's 300 million different translations. That we- you get up and you get a Bible. And, and like me, if you want to get it through the Bible in a year, go get one. They're cheap. They're easy to find. Mine is all worn out. I, I, I've done it for years. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm telling you, I woke up one day and said, I can't do this without getting with God first thing in the morning. So I do. And, and what does the word do? It, it, it helps me set my mind on the things of the spirit. I'm focusing on the promises. I think about what I've read. I, I usually do a little quick study on something that jumped out at me. I get my mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. And then I yield my life to God that day. I usually pray through the Lord's prayer, which is real easy. You know, it's quick. It covers all the bases. And then I start my day. And I start my day full of the Spirit with my mind set on the things of the Spirit. And if I don't do that, the devil will see to it. My mind is on things of the flesh. This is not rocket science. Amen? So we call getting up and getting with God a holy habit. It's just a holy habit. And you do it. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I was doing through the Bible in a year, and I, and I missed a bunch of days, and I lost uh, my desire to get back in. Listen. Go to the date tomorrow and get right back in the game. So what if you miss some? Start again. David said, your word was to me like honey to my soul. He said, your word is better than gold. Whatsoever is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and good report, Philippians 4.8. Whatever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, if there be any virtue or any praise, think, 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 on these things. Set your mind on those things. Or we're going to choose to think about things of the flesh. The only way to avoid a carnal mind is choose to cultivate the mind of Christ. That's the only way. So everybody say amen if you get it. Amen. Amen. One last thing quickly. You say, Pastor Jeff, I just don't get anything out of the Bible. Well, get a version that is easy for you to get and understand. And maybe I'm gonna do a a, a one Wednesday night on the translations and what are the best ones. But even if you don't seem to get much out of it, never read your Bible without a pen or a pencil, never. Because paper never forgets. Every day when I read my Bible, even though I've been through it over and over again, something new always jumps out at me. The thing that jumps out, I will underline it I put a date next to it, usually the year, because the date's obvious, because the date is where I am in my Bible, but the year, and I make a little note of what it said to me, just what it spoke to me. I make a little note. I have my own little Bible study. I make my own little note. And and the next year, when I go back to that same uh, day, and I look, and I say, oh, that's what God spoke to me last year from that verse. And you begin having this 
your own personal seminary, your own personal school. And you will find if you will make a little note, it will start talking to you. It will start jumping out at you. If you're a child of God and you tell me you're not getting anything out of the word of God, I'm going to tell you, you're not, you're not right. That's not true. You are getting something out of it. Give yourself some credit. You are getting something out of it. And you'll find that if you just make a little note, one little sentence can just jump out. You go, all right, right there. Wow, I'm saved by grace through faith. That spoke to me in 2017. And here's what it did. It gave me peace. And that's all I'll put. I'm just trying to help you here, give you some handles here, okay? Because God wants us in his word. Wherewithal shall a young person or a young or anybody cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. All right? All right, we got to move on. Next, the Holy Spirit wants to control the member. Oh, I'm sorry, the motives of the believer. The motives of the believer. There's a huge difference between being in the flesh and in the spirit. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This is verses eight to nine. Those controlled by the sinful nature, always thinking about fleshly things, cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. And if the spirit of God lives in you, or if the spirit of God lives in you, and if anybody does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So if you belong to Christ, the spirit of God lives in you. And if the spirit of God lives in you, he wants to control your thought life and the motives of your heart. To be in the flesh is to be motivated by the desires of the flesh. But to be in the spirit is to be motivated by the spirit of God. Surrender to God, to his word, and to the Holy Spirit. And it will guarantee that your motives will be pleasing to God. Remember when David said, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my God, my strength and my redeemer. Now, Paul makes it clear there's two kinds of people. Those that have the spirit of God, the saved, and those who do not have the spirit of God, the lost. So not everybody is a child of God. Everybody's a creation of God, but not everybody is a child of God. You gotta be born again to be a child of God. And if the spirit of God is not living in your heart, you're not a child of God. But if he is living in your heart, he wants to control your thought life and he wants to be in charge of what drives you, what your motives are, what you pursue in life. All right? So everybody say mind, motives. But then he also wants to control the members of the believer. Look what he says in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, watch these words now, to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, when you hear the word mortal, it means temporary. All right, we have this treasure. What did Paul say in Corinthians? He said, we have this treasure, the Holy Ghost, in earthen vessels. That is mortal bodies. That's where the Holy Ghost is dwelling. And it's an amazing thing. That music group, Jars of Clay, we're all jars of clay. But in that jar, 
is a treasure. The Holy Spirit of God, the riches of his presence. All right? So now, the word mortal and immortal in the Bible always refers to the body. When you see either mortal or immortal, it's talking about a human body. It is this mortal that's going to put on immortality at the resurrection. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on resurrection. And the same spirit, says Paul, that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead is living in every single believer. So though these verses primarily refer to the future resurrection of our bodies when mortal is going to put on immortality. Somebody called into the radio show a while back and um, they said, I don't understand. He said, uh, this whole cremation thing. They said, uh, you know, uh, I have I have relatives, and I think they said something. One of their parents had been cremated. They had all, they said, I want to be cremated when I pass away, and they had been cremated. And they said, how in the world, if they're cremated and their ashes are spread all over some forest or into the ocean or something like that, how is God going to pull all that back together and give them a glorified body? I get these kind of questions, and there's no delay. I've got to come up with an answer right then. But then I thought, but that's easy in this respect. How many of you believe in a supernatural God? All right. He's no God unless he's supernatural. Now, now God said, let there be, and suddenly it was. Let there be light. Let there be animals. Let there be fish. Let there be birds. Let there be vegetation. And, and something came out of Nothing. Ex nihilo, Latin. It means from nothing, something. Only God can do that. You can't do that. No, I can't do that. I can only make something out of something else that's already existing. This pulpit here was, here's steel, here's wood. This used to be a tree. They made a pulpit out of a tree, but they made something that exists out of something that already existed. But God doesn't have to worry about that. God makes something out of nothing. So how, if God could make something, this whole world and universe and galaxies upon galaxies, if he can just say, let it be, and it is, he has no problem calling ashes from the ocean or calling ashes from a forest and pulling together a body and making it glorified and giving you a glorified body. Let me ask you a question. What do you think Paul's body looks like right about now? Do you think he's down there, the Apostle Paul, just waiting to be resurrected? No, his bones are pure ashes. But he said he was constantly thrown in jail for preaching the resurrection of the body. Because he said the crux of the promise of God is he not only loved my soul, he loved my body. He's going to give me a glorified body because our bodies fell in the fall. So he's going to give us a glorified body. And it'll be like Jesus's. Uh, we'll be able to eat, but then walk through a door without opening it. I believe we'll be able to think and be somewhere without having to travel there. Because Jesus did it. Didn't he do it? Come on. They're all standing. They're, they're all huddled together in a room, afraid of the authorities. The door is shut and locked, and suddenly Jesus is in the midst of them. He just poop. Hello, guys. That's what he did. How do he do that? Glorified body. And what does it say about Jesus? He's the first fruit of those that are to come. That means all of us. So watch him after he's resurrected. 
and you got a good idea of what a glorified body that you're going to have is going to be able to do. I'm so glad it can still eat. And you know what? Not gain weight. <laughs> yeah, no Weight Watchers in heaven. No, no. No dieting. Hallelujah. Glory to God. None of that. It's true. I'm not giving you a fairy tale. This is all what's in the Bible. <sighs> Amen. So he says in verse 12, therefore, brothers, we've got an obligation. It is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. I'm not obligated to the sinful nature at all. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit of God, I want everybody to read this with me. But if by the Spirit, come on, everybody. But if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So how do I defeat the flesh, the sinful flesh, by the Spirit that lives inside of me? How do I release him to win the battle? I yield. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. Present your bodies. That means yield. Present your body. Yield it to him because it's your reasonable service because of what he's done for you. And don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So believers have an obligation. And I just quoted it, so we don't need to go to it. So the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he desires complete sovereignty over his temple. Once he has control of the believer's body, the Spirit of God can then impart victory over sins which involve use of the body's members. So I wonder how many of us here tonight have ever said, Lord, I give you my body, my hands, my feet, where I go, my hands, what I do, my eyes, what I see, my ears, what I hear, my mouth, what I say, my mind, what I think, I yield my body to you because the Holy Ghost can't take over until there's been a yielding. So I wonder if we've even thought about that. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. We're almost to the end for tonight. Let's talk about sonship, an intimate personal relationship. Paul next goes to the theme of sonship. And he covers the test of sonship, the privilege of sonship, the witness of sonship, and the assurance of sonship. We're going to hit these quickly. First, the test of sonship. What's the test? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Shall I catch that? Let's read that together. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. A day-to-day -day response to the leading of the Spirit indicates the one to whom we belong because we all follow the one to whom we belong. What Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. And they do what? Follow me. So that's the test of sonship. Are you following him? It's a big test. Second, the privilege of sonship. 
For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, always being afraid of God's judgment. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Can we say it together? Abba. How many of you remember when you were born again, when you were actually saved, the minute you were saved? Do you remember that moment? Isn't that etched in your memory? Do you remember having this incredible, beautiful sense of all of a sudden being joined to God in your heart, in your spirit, in your soul, on the inside? There was this sense of, wow, he's my father. And is that literally true? Yes. Born again, born again, born twice, means that God's your father. Born once, the devil's your father. Born twice, God's your father. So because of our adoption to God's family, we have the privilege. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Uh, So we've got the test of sonship. Yeah, the privilege of sonship. Because what's the privilege mean? That it's a privilege for us to be able to say, Abba, Father, now I'm in the family. That's a privilege. I've been adopted. That's a privilege. Now I'm literally in the family of God. So there is the test of sonship, the privilege of sonship. And then third, the witness of sonship. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Bible teaches that at the moment of conversion to Jesus Christ, God's spirit testifies to our own spirits that we have become a child of God. And the spirit of God put inside of you and me coming to live inside of us is like a engagement ring. We're not in heaven yet. We haven't met the bridegroom yet, but we're engaged. And Paul goes on to say in another place that the Holy Spirit is like a down payment of what is coming. It's a literal down payment. So think of your most powerful spiritual moment. The moment when you sense God's presence the most mightily. Where it was just like he was all over you, above you, below you, around you, in you. Just God's presence washed over you. Think of your highest spiritual summit. And that's only a down payment of what's coming. Wow. Amen. Isn't this good stuff? So there's the test of sonship, the privilege of sonship, the witness, and finally the assurance of sonship. And he says in verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul emphasizes here our sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about what all people go through. Losing a job, not having enough money, your kids going nuts on you. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the sufferings of Christ. No. He's talking about the sufferings that come from following Christ. From following Christ. Like rejection persecution, even martyrdom. When, when we are ridiculed for the name of Christ, that's the sufferings of Christ. When we are rejected, ostracized, no longer invited to the lunch table at the lunch break at work, because we, we, we're one of those. We talk about Jesus. Nobody wants to be around us. You're experiencing the suffering of Christ. All right. When Paul was whipped across his back five times, 
where Jesus was whipped once, five times. He was whipped that way. What was that? That was the sufferings of Christ. Okay? And, and beloved, I'm going to tell you tonight, listen carefully to me. I'm not, listen, I'm not being heavy. I'm just shooting straight with you. Sufferings of Christ are increasing in the body of Christ all around the world. More and more people are experiencing the suffering of Christ. There are people right now in China who are sitting in some dingy prison cell, taken away from family, children, friends, home, hearth, and and they're being given horrible, moldy food. They're sitting, in, many of them, in solitary confinement for doing what? For, for meeting in a home and having church. That's the sufferings of Christ. Amen. Sufferings of Christ. They're happening all over the world. And you know where they're happening more and more? In the good old U.S. of A. They're happening more and more. The sufferings of Christ. Um, it's, it's no longer cool to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, it's very uncool to be a Christian with some folks. I think it's cool. I love Christians. But I'm a Christian. But if you're out there in the world, you don't want to hear from me. And they're getting more and more. There's a, there's a greater and greater polarization taking place out there. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. And there's no shade of gray. There, there's no on the fence. You're in, you're out. Either way. And the battle line has been drawn. And if you're going to take a stand for him, you're going to experience the sufferings of Christ. He that would live godly in Christ Jesus will Say it, suffer persecution. But Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us when the trumpet blows and up we go. And so I have made up my mind. We, the elders, have made up our mind. We're going full throttle into everything God has for us, what he wants us to do, who he wants us to reach, how he wants us to reach them. And we're gonna win as many to Christ as possible and build up as many of the saints as we possibly can because we know time is short and night comes when no one can work. And so we wanna take advantage and redeem the time. Amen? Amen. Amen. How many of you enjoyed first half of Romans 8? Let's stand together, can we? I would take questions, but once again, my mic guy is gone. So I can't get the mic to you, but we'll take questions next time. Uh, do what? Uh, does anybody have a question real quick? Are there any, anybody want to ask a question tonight? Uh, well, I don't think there's any questions tonight. Uh, one, I'm going to count to three. If you've got a question, raise your hand. Oh, there's a question. Okay, let me take two questions. And then we will go. So and about what I taught on tonight or anything else theological, biblical, we want to try to answer that question. So go right ahead. My question is, if you fail the test of sonship, does that mean you're not a son? And by that, I mean, there was a time in my life I, I had a failure or a sin and I fell and I was so mortified that I spent several years not following, not that I turned my back on him, but I was so ashamed that I didn't follow him. How, if I, and at that, during that time frame, if you look at that definition of the test of sonship, that would not have applied. So I, I guess my question is, I believe once saved, always saved. So 
I was a son. I just didn't pass that test. Or a daughter, yeah. should I say. <laughs> so what we're dealing here with is what's called sinless perfection. There are some. There's a major teacher out there. I'm not going to give his name. But he's teaching that Christians should never have to repent. Should never have to repent. If I said his name, you would all know the name. But he says, you, Christians should never have to repent because when we were forgiven the first time and we were born again, it took care of our forgiveness for the rest of our life. That's a totally false view. All right. There's another view that's called sinless perfection. And you can go back in church history and probably find some folks in the world right now teaching this, that if you're really born again, you will never go into any kind of active sin. Um, and if you do, you're probably not saved. Sinless perfection is what it's called. That's false. The truth is there's two kinds of truth. There's positional truth and there's experiential truth. Now follow me carefully. Positional truth is what God did for you on the cross. Positionally, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it, it bears hearing again. Positionally, you are in Christ. This is what, the way God sees you. You positionally are in Christ. What does it tell us in Colossians 3? You are seated with him in heavenly places. That's how God sees you right now. As far as he's concerned, you're already there. It's just a matter of time catching up with the reality that you're already in Christ in heavenly places. But experientially, we're all here. All right, positionally, God doesn't see any sin in my life. I've been, the, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. He made him to be sin who knew no sin that I might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. So God looks at me and he says, righteous. But experientially, I'm a, when I'm born again, I'm a spiritual baby. What do babies do? They wet their diapers and they fall and they mess up and they do things they shouldn't and they need to be taken care of constantly. Spiritual babies are no different. And as you grow up, you fall, you skin your knee, you make mistakes, you disobey your parents, you got to get right. It's a growing process. We're all experientially growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Now that's going to require 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The very fact that you were bothered and devastated by what happened shows you're a child of God. It's the people that I worry about are the people that say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I've walked with Jesus, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven, but they're living in active sin and there's no, there's no conviction. There's no conviction. They're living like the world, walking like the world, talking like the world, thinking like the world, doing like the world. I can't tell them apart from the world, but they tell me that they're born again, but they have no conviction. Now, if you, are, if you fall into a sin which Christians do all the time. The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. We have sin. They, we, there's, there's, as Christians, we fall, we mess up. But the deal is God picks us up. He calls us to the cross. We repent, we get it right. We get back on the right track and we keep following him. But never does, does the Bible teach flawless Christianity. No, no. Positionally, 
You were saved and in him the whole time. Experientially, you fell and skinned your knee. But you didn't, he, he didn't say, well, you fell and skinned your knee. Uh, I'm disadopting you and I'm unborning you again. Did that come out right? I mean, I've always wondered, how do you get unborn again? You know, but does that help? Okay, Any, one other question? Way over there, Cindy, they're gonna work you. All right, way over there. I love questions. We'll take one more, unless this is a really quick one. We'll see. All right. I just oh, don't give her the mic, she'll preach. I'm sorry. No, I'm just, kidding. Go ahead. I just wanted to piggyback on what she was saying when you said that. Uh, I can't hear her good. It's I'm sorry. Little... Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. I just want to piggyback on what she was saying. When I f- feel like I'm, like if I sin and I know I did something wrong, I look back at the Bible like David. He fell. And but God called him the apple of his eye. And I'm thinking like, Wow. Then all of the stuff he did, we have to look at that. We're not perfect. Just right. look at everybody in the Bible that was, to us, is like regular people. But to God, they were his children. That's right. And they weren't perfect at all. That's right. So when you feel that, like, I'm worthless, look at David, look at Abraham, look at Peter, look at everyone who was flawed. And that's what I look at. I told you she was going to preach. <laughs> that's good. All right. Okay, th- this is a really good theme to end on because there's a lot of Christians that deal with this. And only God knows how many people are not in church um, any given Sunday because they fell and they, the devil convinces them, who are you to go back to church? Who, who are you to get around the Christians again? You big, fat hypocrite. What they don't realize is the church is full of hypocrites. That is full of people who aren't perfect is what I mean. Now, I shouldn't say full of hypocrites because hypocrisy is more serious. It's full of people who, who sincerely love God but sincerely mess up some. And God's very patient with us and long-suffering. And um, I, I teach, and I'll close with this, keep short accounts with God. If you mess up, don't carry it for weeks and months and, and longer, but keep short. Don't give a sin longer than a 24-hour shelf life. It'll rot on you. When you mess up, say, Jesus, forgive me. I messed up. I shouldn't have said that, done that, whatever, thought it. And please forgive me. And Lord, grace me, teach me to be better prepared for that temptation next time. And you learn and you grow. And if he told us to forgive each other 490 times in a day, how many times in a day will he forgive us? Amen? Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for these precious people. Bless us as we go. Thank you, Lord, that we are your children adopted into the family of God. And thank you that the Holy Spirit is within us now. And the spirit of the law of the spirit of life is holding us up, and it's a stronger law than the law of sin and death. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.